Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecreuset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week, we're looking at the way labels shape our perspectives on food. I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but is it acceptable to judge a wine by its label? There are some labels that I'd say are so bad they're good. As long as your paperwork's in good shape, you'll get a grass-fed label. Tune in to this week's Meet and Three on Heritage Radio Network. That's Meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to HR and Happy Hour. It's five o'clock somewhere, and somewhere is Bushwick. I'm Kat Johnson, the communications director here at HRN, and I'm flying the host train solo today. Flying the train. <laughs> Driving the train solo today. Uh, Katie and Hannah are off on some very important missions related to our Winter in the Garden annual gala, um, which I'll go ahead and shout out right now, is on Monday, December 3rd at the Brooklyn Botanic Garden. Um, it's our second annual one, and we're going to have amazing food and wine, and they're working on some um, decor and really special things to make the gala an extra special night. Um, so they uh, will be back here in a couple weeks. Um, but for now, I want to let our guests introduce themselves because I'm definitely not alone in the studio. I've got some really awesome people here with me. So I'll just let um, you take it away. Okay, my name's Louisa Spencer from Farnham Hill Ciders, arguably the geezer, the geezer company in, in the craft cider world. Hi, um, I'm Ezra from Eve Cidery. Nice to be here. Uh, I'm Max Working. I work at Skernick Wines on the portfolio that handles uh, cider, and we have the great privilege of working with uh, Lulu and her husband Steve, and also Ezra and uh, Autumn from Eve's, and also... Melissa Madden of uh, Kite and String, who couldn't make it, but we uh, we brought a bottle of her cider today as well. Excited to taste some cider. And I'm Andrew Mulligan, also from Skernick Wines. Well, I'm super excited to have everyone here, and do we want to pop a bottle? Hey! <laughs> now it's happy hour. Um, so, Louisa, tell us what the first bottle that you just opened is. Well, it's what we call extra dry, which is not accurate, but back when we created this label in 1999, putting the word brute on a New Hampshire cider would have basically ended, put it in the aftershave section. <laughs> Nobody had the faintest idea what cider was in the first place in its global sense, and, um, and the word brute would have just killed the whole, every hope we had. So we call it extra dry. It actually has no sugar in it whatsoever, but it is loaded with fruit which yes. does not require sweetness. I'm so excited to taste it. And we're going to, we were chatting a little bit before about cider and language, and I think you just kind of kicked off that part of the conversation. But we'll circle back to that in a minute. Um, one other person I wanted to introduce quickly is our engineer, Matt Patterson, who is in the booth. Hey, hey. Hello. Okay, so a couple of announcements. I already mentioned our Winter in the Garden annual gala, Monday, December 3rd. Tickets are on sale now. Make sure you go and buy them. You 
There we go. Um, you can go to heritageradionetwork.org slash gala, and the tickets are right there, and all of the participants are listed there as well, so you can see all of our amazing chef friends and bartenders that will be serving you delicious bites and drinks all night long. We also wanted to give a shout out to some of our friends from Charlotte, North Carolina. Many of you know that that city has really emerged onto the culinary scene as a must-visit place for food and cocktails. Um, we went there last year and interviewed a lot of chefs and bartenders. Um, they're actually going to be in New York this Friday, November 16th. Oh, sorry, next Friday, November 16th for a Charlotte Tastemakers Dinner at the James Beard House. Tickets are available at jamesbeard.org slash events. So if you don't want to go all the way to Charlotte but want to get a taste of what's going on down there, check it out. Okay, and now I have a few headlines I'm going to read. So do we have the news music? Absolutely not. I, I didn't we don't have news music. Okay, let me just give a quick overview of a few it's shows. Something like that. All right. This week on Speaking Broadly, Dana Cowan sits down with Jasmine Crow, who first started cooking for those in need out of her Atlanta home, eventually cooking for hundreds of people at a time. As another way to help feed the hungry and fight food waste, she later founded Gooder. It's a business that helps pair restaurants with institutions that can share their excess food. Crow tells Dana Cowan how one friend's empathy refri- empty refrigerator catapulted her into action and how she built a tech business without experience in the digital realm. Another show we wanted to point out, since we're kind of on the topic of fermentation on happy hour today, fermentation, what is it? You may know it has something to do with bacteria and that it helps make beer, wine, cider, other alcoholic beverages. But did you know that bread is a fermented food? This week's episode of Modernist Breadcrumbs is all about fermentation, and you'll hear from Keith Cohen of Orwasher's Bakery, Nina White of Bobo Link Dairy and Bakehouse, Tracy Chang of Pagu, Marika, Marika J- Josephson of Scratch Brewing, and of course, co-authors of Modernist Bread, Nathan Mirvold and Francisco Magoya. So check out our new episode of Modernist Breadcrumbs. And lastly... There's really nothing quite like a good sake. It's clean, refreshing, and delicious. And on this week's Japan Eats, Akiko sits down with a true ambassador of the beverage, Andrew Richardson of World Sake Imports. He's been in the business for the past 11 years. And on this episode, you'll hear him talk about his favorite sakes, favorite breweries, and how he came to create a sake pairing menu for Wiley Dufresne's WD-40. All right. That's just a taste of the 35 shows we have on our network week to week. So make sure that you're going to heritageradionetwork.org and checking out all of the shows that are available. Okay. Now that I have a moment to breathe, I'm going to taste some of this cider. And while I do that, um, so Louisa, you mentioned that you called it the geezer of ciders. Well, we just, we were ahead of our time. Exactly. In, in the most awkward way. I mean, you know, everybody knows that the people who start anything that nobody's doing are sort of weird. And um, and we were those weird people. Back in the 50s, there were some very weird people who planted vinifera grapes in America. Uh, before that, post-prohibition winemaking was sweet and fizzy and alcopop and whatever nasty fruit was lying around. And then these table wine geeks started it, and by the 70s, it was a huge, obvious, normal thing in America to make good wine. And um, cider just took longer because the meaning of the word was altered, gutted in during uh, Prohibition, more or less on purpose. And so coming out of Prohibition, people were looking for the sweet brown juice of fall when they heard the word cider, and fighting that back has been a very aging process. 
So what, what have been some of the challenges in the last like decade or so as things have some, some people have started to really come around to cider. Um, some, a lot haven't. So like what's, well, what's been case, challenging? It, well, here's the, the, the last box that cider, our kind of cider had to jump out of was the idea that it had to taste like apples. Because, you know, we ferment the fruit we have, and it's extremely rare, fabulous, and amazing fruit, to express itself as best it can, which means it's not going to taste like an apple pie or anything. And people don't expect wine to taste like grapes. In fact, when you call a wine grapey, you're being rude, you know. And uh, most of the apple-flavored ciders on the market have had the apple re-injected after the fermentation. So, um, so I'd say that's been the last barrier. And then just the immense, the colossal, dazzling array of mass-market ciders with their beautiful packages and their fabulous slogans and their great marketing, none of which we can begin to imitate. And now, Ezra, tell us a little bit about how you got into cider making. Um, well, our story really dovetails with uh, Farnham Hills and what kind of Lulu just related. Our sort of origin story kind of begins with Farnham Hill to a certain extent. Um, before I got involved, um, Autumn, my wife, started the uh, started Eve Cidery when she was 21. Wow. Yeah, and uh, I'm looking out at um, at Roberta's Pizza and uh, uh, reminiscing about that. She started it on a server's tip uh, accumulation. And, and um, you asked what are, have been some of the challenges in the past decade. When I heard that, I was thinking, well, there's, there's, there's marketing challenges that I think you were referring to. But with, language. Cert- with language. With yeah, language Yeah, stuff. and I could really go into that. But I think yeah. what you weren't um, asking about was like farming challenges mm-hmm. and kind of the challenge of starting a farm as compared to like inheriting it. Um, and that's not what I'm saying. Lulu. Well, we didn't inherit it. No, I'm not we, saying we had to cut everything down. Yeah, no, I'm not comparing. Decide, so. I'm not comparing them to that in, in that regard. It's just, I think, um, a lot of people kind of um, continue to farm um, after their like parents started a farm, and is they that have, how she started? No, um, her dad was always a farmer, like reader, a, a tractor huh. aficionado. But um, he was not a farmer. Aspirational. Aspirational that farmer. Sounds, my dad's the same way, but he's yeah. in Alabama. So I mean, <laughs> oh, you yeah. can you know hook into a lot of different aspects of farming yeah. and really get motivated by you know by diesel engines or by you know regenerative agriculture. It's, Discovering an old Ford tractor somewhere and being like, "That's what I need to do now." Or browsing Tractor House and just <laughs> thinking about what you're going to buy. But anyway, um, so. Um, Autumn got the farming bug um, when she was a teenager, but um, where Eve started really was at a UPEC that um, Autumn was working at. The connection with Farnham Hill was was about the time that she started Eve's. She read in uh, Fruit Grower, I believe, which is like a commercial um, publication that um, one of the major for fruit growers (laughs) major commercial (laughs) mag and um, she read about uh, um, these fruit growers who had gone to England and brought back these specific varieties for winemaking or cider making and she was like um, at the time just making cider from drops and from the varieties that uh, are apropos for you pick and but then heard about these varieties that were comparable to grape wine varieties 
and about this couple that went to England and brought them back. And I don't know if she completely cold called yes, she Steve. Did. Everybody cold called Steve. So she clo- she just basically showed up in Lebanon, New Hampshire, and she uh, could not believe how gracious Steve was and. He is very gregarious. <laughs> and anybody. There's so uh, many he, words for let, that. Let me let, yeah, <laughs> uh, to, uh, say that he does enjoy a good chat. But um, he went way beyond that. And I think he, and he spent like a good portion of the day going around with Autumn and, and continuing what she had read about their research and what they had done, culminating with him sending her off a sign would. To, um, to start an orchard. Well, to do Steve justice, he has a very good radar for who's the real deal and who's something else again. And we've met a lot of people who are only moderately the real deal. She is 1,000% yeah, the real deal. Totally. And he yeah. saw that right away. Right. So we've had a kind of a, an intimate relationship with uh, Farnham Hill and kind of have a, a love fest. Do you want to say anything about us? No, just kidding. No, I, I, every time I go to your place, I wish we could sort of get rid of our place. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, do you feel like the cider community regionally or even like among countrywide is, is like that? Or is that just so no. far? And it depends who you mean by the cider community. It's you know cider makers, I would say. Well, cider makers includes people with you know concentrate base and and a and a beer cycle for mm. timing. I mean, we are stuck in the seasons, and we are victims of nature and whatever nature decides to do. And and we're necessarily to make the stuff we make. It takes a long time, so we need people to pay more money and all that stuff. And we have less money to promote our higher prices <laughs> so we're a little bit we're kind of um people have said an acquired taste but also even finding us in the thicket of amazingly well-marketed commercial ciders is hard mm-hmm. so am i wrong in saying that's kind of where skernet comes in a little bit yeah well i mean i think you know it's it's important to start by saying that um we skernick are are relatively new to the cider world and mm-hmm. so we've been we've been learning uh sort of on the go um and it's really this year that our cider portfolio has has really coalesced in into this thing which is is now developing a little bit of momentum and um but uh the the particular laws of new york state actually reinforce a very interesting sort of philosophical divide that exists within the cider community. And um, you were referencing before we started that, you know, is cider like beer and is cider like wine? I think it depends which cider you're talking about. Mm. And um, so in order for Skernick, we don't have a, a license to sell beer or beer adjacent products. And so in order for us to legally sell uh, Farnham Hill and and Kite and String and Eves um, and some other ciders that we sell, we have to have a letter on file from the cidery that says it is our intention to market our product as apple wine. And what does that mean on like a day-to-day basis for the cider makers? And does it change well, the way you do anything? No. From what we understood from the outset, looking at the regs at the very beginning, the... Um, 
if you're over 7%, as far as the feds are concerned and their whole tax structure is concerned, you pay a wine tax. And um, so that's what we've always done. And, and um, Ezra pays, you pay a champagne tax, right? Because they make their cider method champenoise, so they have the pressure in the bottle that, that pushes their taxes up to champagne levels. You know, and I mean, even technically, the feds even regard mass market cider as wine because it is a fermented fruit product. It's just that they tax it differently in order to level the playing field with beer, which is a very short version of a very long story. And, and I think, you know, Farnham Hill uh, came to Skernick uh, after previously having spent, what, 10 years? Uh, Quite a few years, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> in New York State, they don't have a special category for cider. They don't tell you what kind of distributor you can have. And when we started out in the aughts, we had two or three incredibly crooked wine distributors in a row. So we, you know, they would sell the stuff, but they would never pay us. Mm -hmm. And there was nothing we could do about it because the state apparatus wasn't going to enforce, you know, the bunch of people in New Hampshire getting stiff. They didn't care. Uh, so we went to to the beer distributor because they pay their bills and that was really it but it introduced us to a whole lot of other stopping points in the marketplace and the sort of weird mental furniture people carry around so we are thrilled to pieces to be back with a wine distributor that kind of understands what it is we do um so as as you're starting to work more with a cider portfolio um what have you guys had to learn what has been a challenge what's been exciting for you as you've moved into this world uh, maybe a good place to start that discussion would be with varieties um, for those of us who come at cider from a wine direction we're all used to hearing about uh, Pinot Noir and Cabernet Sauvignon and Riesling and you know all these other varieties that we, we know where they're grown and where they're best and what their characteristics are but for us coming to cider and specifically these types of ciders that are really grown in the orchard from specific varieties intended for cider, those varieties are new to us. And maybe they're not new to long-time uh, hardcore cider heads, but um, you know, every day we're learning about a new variety and what their characteristics are and how they contribute to the blends. And uh, you know, it's a very, it's a, it's a deep topic that we're only just starting to really sink our teeth into. Cool. We were talking a little bit about cider language Shout out to Jordan Warner Berry, who I was mentioning did a bunch of um, work at NYU about around cider language and kind of figuring out what do these words mean when we put them on bottles. The big ones are sweet and dry, semi-sweet. Um, but I'm sure you guys can probably talk a lot about how there are so many more words that you can use to describe the ciders that you're making. And you're mentioning putting brute on a bottle at one point would have just been beyond most people's understanding yeah well we are on an island cider wise i mean the the varieties that we brought in were chiefly english a couple of more french we had to test them a great deal because they have to get it done in a month or six weeks less time in new hampshire than they did back in the old country in some cases it just this proposition just killed them so we grow the ones that not only grew well but actually produced better fruit in many cases more sugary fruit under a state of kind of pressure and emergency than they did back home but we're still learning what they can do they are talented you know and full of tricks and treats and uh, so and one of the things that we're both excited 
about and very nervous about is that a lot of people across the country who know how to grow apples, because they've been sending grocery apples into the market for generations, they know how to grow apples, but they're planting cider blocks from our budwood. Because Steve gives DNA for these for these um, varieties to anybody who wants it, just to you know get an industry going. It's all about the orchards for us, really. Um, and so there are blocks of these apples out there in, in terroir that we know nothing about. And frankly, the people who planted them don't know anything about it either. So we're very interested to see if the stuff grows well and lives up to its reputation. Because we have made very good reputations for a lot of this fruit. But if it's going to grow well in Kansas, we don't know. And we're a bit terrified. Well, I could go on for a very long time, but the techniques involved in harvesting cider apples are radically different from what you do for the fresh market. And the, the, the fresh market reflex is very urgent. You know, it's adrenaline-powered. So Steve's always on the phone saying, don't pick them, don't pick them, you know, to trying to let, get the guys to let them ripen because they need to ripen way past the point at which you would want a Granny Smith to travel the market and splurt the juice all out of your mouth and all that stuff. It's, they're not like that. So... There are many complexities ahead. Um, so pre-prohibition, cider was a pretty big industry. Um, and apple trees were grown, I assume, a lot more places than they currently are now, specifically cider apple trees. Is there any way to do like historical research about specific regions to figure out, to try to figure out what would grow well there or not? Or is it just kind of like you're having to relearn and do it all from scratch? Well... I, I feel as though somebody else should be talking, but the, what, yes, you can look all this stuff up, but what happens when, when um, varieties are not propagated and not maintained is they disappear. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of names. You can, look in, <laughs> you can look in the annals of the New Jersey Horticultural Society in the late 1890s, which are in Google Books, and you can see the growers arguing with temperance coming about whether they're going to sin and make cider to keep their orchards going because every new pest out of the harbor was coming in and ruining their fruit every year, or whether they're just going to give up because they, they are not going to bend to the temptation of making alcohol. A lot of the varieties they were talking about have just vanished. And at the same time, the, if there wasn't an industry, the hunt was on for sweet, cookable table fruit because most of the apples being grown at that time were not suitable for anything but cider, even if they didn't have names. So there was a lot of heavy-duty food research going on at many levels to try to find growers' varieties to uh, move to. And uh, so, yeah, you can do the research. Whether you can revive the actual um, varieties is a whole other question. That's interesting. Um, so, Ezra, tell me a little bit more about some of the ciders you're making right now that you're really excited about. Well, um Last year we had um, enough of a crop to make some single variety ciders so that we could isolate to a certain extent the varieties and show people what it is that like for a, an example of a bitter sharp is or an example of a fricant rouge, which I'm not pronouncing correctly, um, is. And I thought that that was an interesting experiment that we started last year. Um, Can I just interrupt yeah, go ahead. and say they make unbelievably good cider. Oh, it's thanks. almost annoying because we're old and they're not old. And they have mm -hmm. they make some stuff that, you know, just Steve, as he would say, goes weak at the knees about their cider. And Ezra's not going to say that, but it is That's... 
unbelievably good. That's nice. Um, did you make an, a Newtown Pippin single variety? We did it at Porter's Perfection. Porter's, okay. Um, which uh, usually uh, we've going back to the new farmer thing. We just have um, some varieties coming on with enough uh, volume that we can isolate like a tank of it and follow it through to bottling. Um, and that's that's what it was like last year for us. And uh, so I was really excited about that. Um, Autumn had the idea to uh, to macerate the juice or macerate the pulp. That is, so we we didn't press the apples immediately. We ground them and then let them sit in a tank for about a day and a half. That was a Kingston Black that we did. And um, I think... That was a very interesting experiment. So we did a, a tank of Kingston Black that we pressed immediately, and then a tank that we macerated, like I just um, described, and then pressed that a day and a half, and, and followed that through to the uh, end of fermentation. What was the difference? The, um, the difference, there was a big difference. Um, I can't, you know, I can't remember what the unmacerated... Kingston Black was like, but we we rejected it as a single variety, and just bottled the macerated Kingston Black, and that's what we have um, for sale right now. Um, the so the maceration, I think the the experiment was how it would affect the tannins, because there's definitely an evolution with cider that's tannic in the bottle. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, for wine drinkers, I think that that is something that they can kind of bite into and and really take an interest in so to speak with regards to tannins that is the the aging process with the with the cider um so the maceration i think might have softened the tannins and aged them sort of more quickly than they would have in the bottle that was something we're really interested in um that we started experimenting with um we also started experimenting with um primary fermentations in oak um, I think we we share a, a lot of the ideals with Farnham Hill, one of which I think is that we really are trying to express the apple, not as a like a juice, but as what does this apple um, turn into when it's fermented, um, and we're n- not really interested in in adding like tannins through oak or oak flavor. The fermentation in oak though was really to see how um, the cider would ferment differently in oak with the you didn't exposure. You barrels, right? You had old neutral we had old, barrels. Yeah, yeah, we had neutral. We, we have ancient neutral barrels and there's no oak yeah. left in them. We just think. bought them, but they're neutral. Yeah, right. Or the, neutral to a certain extent. Um, and then we've, we've always been interested in uh, this idea of terroir and trying to compare um, varieties that have been grown in different places and how they differ after they're fermented and we've kind of continued to do that through the years we could talk about that i brought a northern spy cider oh. sort of to riff on that is this what we're theme. drinking now or um we we haven't poured it no oh, we did yeah, pour yeah. it this is the northern oh. spy yeah. okay it's delicious it's okay. kind of creamy in a way I, that might be well I yeah. w- sorry yeah. i want right. to borrow a question um we did a, an event about co-fermentation this Monday um, at our office building. And I want to, what you're talking about just made me think of a question that Jordan asked to the panelists there is 
What do you think is, do you think cider has a, a future in aging? Will we see more aged ciders? Well, um, from what we've seen, we hope not. That it may be, it may be a way to distinguish your cider from other people's ciders, but we've tried um, aging ours and they just get more boring after a certain point. However, each one is different and we haven't had time to really study this. One thing though, when it comes to flavor, I, this is my sermon and I have to give it every single time. Everyone's noticed that cider looks like white wine. What they don't realize is you don't chill the soul out of it. I mean, we chill our white wine too much in this country anyway, but people see a pale drink and they drive it into the heart of the ice bucket. Our ciders and all their beautiful little details will just die. So for me, you know, it's, we, we say keep and pour at cellar temperatures, which is, you know, old-fashioned room temperature, castle temperature, which is the mm. which is the right place just about for red wine, right? I mean, a little I'm, warmer I'm than definitely going to use castle, totally. castle yeah, temperature. Yeah, yeah. I definitely <laughs> noted that. You don't yeah. have a castle for well, your Well, no, wine? the point no. is <laughs> that rule was made in drafty buildings mm. where nobody could turn the thermostat up, you know? People kind of lived in the ambient temperature, and that's... And so when people serve red wine at 70, they're not doing it any favors, no matter how fancy the wine is. In, in my opinion, am I wrong about that? Generally? I don't disagree with perfect, you. Right? Yeah, well, I, this is... A, Agree. I mean, for I think this is a little hard. You could go five or 10 degrees down and it would still taste great. And Mr. and Mrs. America are not going to put up with it at this temperature. I don't, I don't know, but I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, it's something about when it's too cold, it like shocks your palate. Well, yeah, but it just... The, 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 all the esters disappear. Yeah. I mean, I, another of my little sermons is... You know when you see serve, serve ice cold on a label? The nice way to translate that is kill the taste. The nasty way to translate that is this stuff sucks. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I, I had one more question for you, Andrew Max. Um, speaking of single varietals, um, are you carrying a lot of single varietal uh, ciders? Are you are dist distributing them? Um, and what's, how do you kind of talk to people about single varietal ciders? Uh your guess is as good as mine. Uh, you know, we, I mean, we have, um, we have uh, the Kingston Black from uh, when, when, the, when Farnham Hill has their Kingston Black for sale, we buy it. Um, and then, and uh, this Northern Spy from, from Eves. But um, I don't, I don't <coughs> think uh, we're there yet. Um, I mean, we're at, we're at a place where we're just trying to get people to, accustomed to the idea of actually buying any cider uh in a in a fine wine shop or or listing it at, in a you know in a prestigious restaurant program and so i don't think um you know i, I don't i don't necessarily know if we're there yet as far as the the um sophistication in the market to say oh northern spy that's one of my favorite varieties or you know i think you know the the single varietal the the varietally labeled ciders are are a way to help people get closer to the idea of this is like wine this is made from one variety and um but as far as you know going out and you know there's probably only half a dozen folks in the most sophisticated beverage economy in the world which is where we're at right now in new york probably half a dozen people who have an intimate knowledge of what a Kingston Black cider should taste like. 
Yeah, but there's also the fact that in cider making, it's been recognized for centuries that blending is, by and large, going to um, create better ciders. The, the, the categories of cider apples actually embody this fact because you need, you need tannins, you need acids, and you need sugars. And most cider apples that are grown purposely for cider have two of the three. So you have your bitter sweets and your bitter sharps. Neither of which will make a complete cider by itself, but you put them together with other playmates and they make something that's massively better than 99% of the single variety ciders you'll find anywhere. And, and that's most of what yeah. you all are and The only reason everybody carries on about Kingston Black is that it happens to have all three of those elements. It also has a bunch of really strange sensory somersaults, which are fascinating. They really annoy some people and they really enchant other people. It's really worth getting hold of a Kingston Black just to see what an apple can do. Do you think people will try to breed more apples to have all three characteristics? I don't know why, except as a marketing tool. I mean, you know, I mean, I'm not kidding when I say hundreds of years. If it was a highly desirable thing in the, in the cultures where cider is an ordinary thing, um, they would have done it, but it's not because everybody understands what it's about, and they're not fixated on names and you know keywords and uh, ways to show off. If you don't mind my saying so, I mean they just want to drink good they, cider. Well, yeah, and they and they know they they know you know they know Dabinet, they know Somerset Red Streak, they know whatever in their region is the commonly grown thing. But if they saw a single variety of something they are pretty sure should be blended, they probably would avoid it. You know. It's just a matter of being at home with something, and we're just not at home with cider, and may not be for a very long time. We'll just have to see. I feel like I'm at home with cider. <laughs> I'm loving it. Do you have something to add to that, Ezra? Well, I was just going to say, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done in understanding how to grow um, cider varieties well, mm-hmm. and you don't have to get into um, trying to breed like a new cider apple um, to spend your life um, kind of um, growing the best cider apples. Um, and so there's all kinds of things that you, um, as a grower, are interested in trying to do. Or there's so many different things that you can experiment with in just the growing of the tree. How, you know, what um, pruning method you use, what's your spacing, what soil do you put it on what's the elevation you put it on what's the slope you put it on um uh, rootstocks exactly rootstocks when do you harvest and you know i agree with everything that lulu's saying about um the blending being kind of the art part Mm -hmm. of the cider making um at least that's the way autumn describes it i think the the single varieties there's some potential there but a lot of it really isn't just, as uh, Andrew describes it, the kind of educational part of um, of the um, of the whole yeah the whole thing. It is so somewhat people... misleading, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if you see Granny Smith on a cider label, you just just I'm sorry, it came from a it came from another place, not <laughs> not any apple that should have been fermented oh gosh that's for pies right well it's not that so much it's just that the flavoring had to be created Mm. by something other than an apple right all right well let's take a very quick break and when we come back um i didn't give you guys a fair warning but we always end our show with some trivia so i have a few (laughs) trivia questions for all of you are they about about cider they're about apples Uh oh no not the kind of apples you think though 
We'll be right back. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. They've been a favorite for generations through the meals and memories the cookware creates and the style it expresses. My name is Kat Johnson. I'm the communications director at Heritage Radio Network. When I'm not making food radio, I'm making food, and my favorite cookware is the eight-quart marine blue Dutch oven that never leaves my stovetop. Not only because I use it constantly, but because cabinet space is at a premium in New York City kitchens. My boyfriend and I were gifted our Le Creuset by his family last Christmas, and it was the first piece of enameled cookware we'd ever owned. I'd been fawning over the marine blue color, especially when I realized there were only a few left in stock. When we unwrapped the box, we were pleasantly surprised to see how big this thing was. I immediately started imagining what I could cook. Roast chicken, Texas-style chili, a leg of lamb, or my favorite, a huge batch of Marcella Hazan's bolognese. Head to lecruset.com slash HRN, that's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com slash HRN to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals. HRN listeners will get 20% off the new Le Creuset cookbook with the code HRN. All right, welcome back to HRN Happy Hour. My name is Kat Johnson, and I am here with um, a whole group of cider makers and cider distributors. So we are going... Oh, well, okay, before we move to trivia, I do want to ask, since it is Cider Week, um, for Louisa and Ezra to tell me about any of the Cider Week events that you were involved in here in New York. Mm. This was a pretty sparse year for us. Same here. <laughs> a little light. <laughs> yeah, it was really light. Last year, um, I think I had an event like every night. Um, this year, um, really the uh, the farm really took a lot of my attention. And uh, I was, yeah, I kind of took it light this year on, on Cider Week. We have the um, Lower East Side Cider Festival immediately after this show. And then um, in the old Essex Market, it's going to be them. And that I think sold out. And then the Brooklyn Cider House is having an event, a dinner, and uh, like a salon in the afternoon that we're uh, participating in. If anybody, um, there's I think tickets still available for the dinner. If anybody wants to take check that out online. And the Brooklyn Cider House is literally just down the street from us here in Bushwick. And is awesome. It is really awesome. It's a really fun place to to have dinner and drink cider. And you can even <laughs> like they, what do they what do you call them when you pour out of the barrel and you catch the, it with your the glass? Chuch. The chuch. The, yeah, the the chuch. The... <laughs> There's someone always doing that, which the... is spelled with a whole lot of X's. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what about you, Louis? So. Well, well, we're same way. We um, this was not uh, exactly a um, cakewalk. This harvest was just enraging in every way and exhausting in every way. So we, um, um, we had a 
the delightful evening at Skernick uh, last night and the Essex uh, market pouring, mass pouring um, tonight, and then we're kind of done. We used to do, you know, six, seven, eight nights of Cider Week, but maybe it's just old age. But And also, we're in New Hampshire. We were, we were brought into Cider Week back before there weren't quite enough New York cider makers. Now there's an abundance of New York cider makers, so... Um, so the whole idea that we should be helping row the boat is a bit less of a big deal, you know. When the the boat is moving, so um, so we're we're like Ezra, we're just we're taking we're taking a a slack year cider week wise. Well, I'm glad that you guys came and made HRN a part of your cider week. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having us. Yeah. All right. So as promised, we're gonna do a little bit of trivia. Um, here on the show, we like to write trivia that you think might be related to our guests, <laughs> but actually is not. So our trivia is about apples, but it's about apples in pop culture. And Matt in the booth can also give you guys a hand if he's willing to do some trivia. Uh, I am. I have seen the answers, though. And I'm oh. very excited about question number two. Okay. I'll explain later. Okay, great. All right. So question number one this is a little bit of an easy one. What fast food restaurant recently announced that they're revamping their apple pie recipe to include fewer ingredients and a new look? And if you know the answer to this, that is bad. <laughs> Maybe. Right. Well, McDonald's apple pies are the famous ones, right? That look like sort of sort of like <laughs> egg rolls. Yeah. yeah. I don't okay. care what they look like. <laughs> I saw one once. No, yeah. really. So apparently, they, yeah, they have fewer ingredients now. They're, they're supposed to be quote-unquote healthier, and they now have like lattices on the top. So oh. I guess they're trying to make them more pie-like. They're trying to make them look like real food. You so. know, <laughs> they're trying. Okay, question number two. So Netflix has recently released a new interpretation of Sabrina the Teenage Witch called The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. It's really good. I have been watching it, too. I like it. <laughs> I, I just watched the first episode the other night. It's really good. I like it. Um, in the new series, she takes a bite of an evil apple to help her decide whether or not to sign her name in the Book of the Dark Lord. In the show, they call the evil apple by its Latin name, which is what? Malice something or other, right? Domestica? Domestica. You've got part of it. I don't yeah. like do half a ding. <laughs> Malice Sabrinas. I don't I, know. I, I would have said Domestica. But... Are you sure they got it right? Do you know what the... <laughs> so you got Malice is the Latin word for apple. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what the Latin word for evil is? Oh, malorum or something like so that. So close. Yeah. So close. It is malum malice. Ah. Yes. Okay. Why were you excited about that one? Just because oh, you like the show? Know, just because I like the show. And I was okay. like, oh, hey, look at that. Cool. I didn't, I wouldn't have pinned you for a Sabrina viewer, but. You know, I had a, I have a friend who writes for it. So I was like, oh. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Question number three. In August, NBC reported that the Red Delicious Apple was no longer the most popular eating apple in the U.S. Which one took its place? Oh, that's a good question. I'm curious about the answer in, myself. In my house, it's Mutsu. No question about mm. that. <laughs> it's not uh, that one. Most popular. I suspect it's Granny Smith, but I don't know. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear it's wrong. <laughs> Is it wrong? Okay. Um, I think Granny Smith was second. Uh-huh. Fuji. Mm -mm. If oh, Granny it's Smith not, is second, um, it must have been second for a long time. Yeah, it's not. Oh, God. It starts Macintosh? with a G. No. 
Starts with G. G. Starts with Gala. G. Yes. Yeah. Gala. Yes. Really? But apparently yeah. we're still growing. I think we're still growing a ton of Red Delicious. We're just shipping them overseas. Yeah, I mean, most of the Gala come from, still come from New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Aren't those kind of mealy? No. They oh. are super naturally hard. I mean, okay. the apples coming out of New, Eng- uh, New Zealand, they breed them to travel 18,000 miles. Wow. Mm. You can put them on the counter and still... They'll hold up frighteningly long. Basically, New Zealand just gave us their red delicious, and it's called a gala. No, not at all. They have a total... Well, don't get me started on New Zealand. (laughs) All right, question number four. This this one's for me. Okay, Apple's current CEO is Tim Cook. Where did he complete his undergraduate degree? I can't believe you did this. This is very much for me, because it's my alma mater. Oh, give us a hint. Whoa, the hints. I'm from Alabama. So he did complete, unlike Jobs. Yes. And he has a master's, but he only did his undergraduate at the same college that I went to. In Alabama. And it's not Alabama. Oh. It's the other one. The better one. You know all those Alabama schools. Come on. Rattle them off. No clue? No clue. Our mascot's the tiger. Clemson. Nope. Close. What? Auburn. <laughs> Auburn. Oh. Yay. Oh, nice. Yep. Tim Cook went to Auburn. He's a big Auburn football fan. All right. Last question. This is the hard one, so I apologize <laughs> no, in advance. The last one was really hard. <laughs> okay. Last question. Gwyneth Paltrow, the actress and Goop founder, has a daughter who's famously named Apple. Apple. She's 14 years old now. What question was Gwyneth Paltrow asked about Apple to which she responded, that would be great. She has her finger on the pulse. What was she asked? You know, there's no hope. <laughs> no hope over here. The, I'll give you a hint. It was asked about Goop. Oh, would she take is. over the company, you mean? We're, we're aiming lower than that. Close. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Baby steps. Yeah. She was asked if if um, Apple would be an intern at Goop. Oh. Mm-hmm. And she said, that, that would be, be great. great. She's like, I need the unpaid labor. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That was our Apple trivia, and you guys won. <laughs> great job. All right. Well, that is our show for the week. I want to thank once again Louisa Spencer, Ezra Sherman, and Max Working and Andrew Mulligan for joining us to talk all things cider and the exciting future that cider has here. I know you guys talked to a lot about how much hard work it is, but all of us here at HRN are really, really big cider fans. So I think the future is very bright. Good. Thanks for having us. <laughs> Just tell them, Thank don't you. serve Thank it you. ice cold. <laughs> I will do that for the rest of my life. Thanks. Um, absolutely. All right. Well, my name's Kat Johnson. Um, thanks once again to our engineer, Matt Patterson. And We will see you in a week or two. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please 
Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.